0: But this show will continue to help you understand the things that affect your health while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. It will also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions, like this one. Another day is here, and you're ready for it.
1: What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
2: Up to 40% of people with Parkinson's disease may experience impulse control behaviors such as compulsive shopping, gambling, hoarding, or hypersexuality. Dopamine agonist drugs are the most common cause. Impulse control behaviors become impulse control disorders when they impair a person's ability to function at home, work, or just make it through daily life. These disorders affect an estimated 1 in 6 people with Parkinson's taking dopamine agonists at some point. Not only does dopamine in the brain control body movements, but it's also involved in the reward pathways. So drugs that stimulate one function may also stimulate the other, meaning impulsive behaviors may be highly pleasurable or anxiety-relieving to the person experiencing them, and they may therefore try to hide them. But these disorders can be harmful to the person, their family, and others around them in terms of financial, social, and health outcomes. The good news is that impulse control disorders are responsive to treatment when recognized early enough. I spoke with Dr. Mark Groves, a psychiatrist at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York, about the need to promptly recognize and report the disorders and what can be done about them. He first defined them.
1: They're behavioral disorders defined by a failure to resist temptation or an urge or an impulse that can harm oneself or others. Essentially, they're behavioral addictions. Individuals who are affected by impulse control disorders compulsively pursue reward-based activities and fail to make careful decisions about the consequences of those repetitive activities.
2: Are some more prevalent in people with Parkinson's? The ones that
1: have been described most commonly in Parkinson's include compulsive eating, hypersexuality, compulsive shopping, and compulsive gambling. As well, hobbyism, which is overabsorption, excessive time in creative projects or hobbies such that it consumes an individual and affects functioning, has also been described. And a related behavior change is called punding, which is intense preoccupation with purposeless sorting, taking apart, or arranging objects, for example, medications or buttons or things like that.
2: Are impulse control disorders stable within a person? Do they
1: change over time, accumulate? Individuals certainly can have more than one impulse control disorder, but once it develops, it usually doesn't go away without treatment, which requires usually medication reduction. In the largest cross-sectional study, individuals with uh, Parkinson's on medications, the Dominion study, about one in seven or 14% of patients had one or more impulse control disorders. So they are mainly related to medication and not the underlying disease? Usually that's the case. People who are not on medications who have Parkinson's can have some impulse-controlled disorders like pathological gambling and others, just like the general population. But dopaminergic medications, in particular dopamine agonists, greatly amplify the risk dopamine agonists can increase the risk in one study two to three and a half times. And rapinerol, pramipexol are dopamine agonists that have particular impact on the emotional brain circuits and can be involved in bringing out impulse control disorders. But it's important to remember that not everyone on those medications gets impulse control disorders. There's a interaction between individual susceptibility to impulse control disorders, the medications, and life experience. Risk factors for that individual susceptibility include younger age of Parkinson's onset, male sex, also family history of alcohol and drug problems, a personal history of alcohol or drug problems, or certainly a personal history of impulse control problems. Heavy cigarette smoking is also a risk factor. So it's an interaction of the meds and the experience within susceptible individuals.
2: Does physician experience with dopaminergic drugs have an influence on whether these things are more or less likely to occur? Well,
1: certainly it's critical for the prescribing physicians to be aware of these risks. So usually, patients with Parkinson's are best served by seeing a movement disorder specialist who is aware of that and will follow them closely. But conscientiousness of the physician in asking, educating patients and family members about the risk is also critical. And not all movement disorder doctors ask as regularly as others.
2: Does the risk increase at certain times, especially when the medication reaches a peak, when people take medications, they go up and down in their blood, or is this more of a long-term constant disorder?
1: My read of the literature, it's not fully clear. Higher doses definitely add higher risk. The shorter-acting forms that have more peaks and valleys across the day may be higher risk than the longer extended-release forms, but I don't think that's been definitively demonstrated Pramipexol and ropinirole probably do have more impact than rotigotine, which is another dopamine agonist, because the Primapexil and the ropinirole bind much more tightly to the emotional brain circuit receptors, the dopamine receptors in the non-motor circuits of the emotional brain. And so it depends probably more on the type of medication and the dose than whether it's short or long-acting, but I don't think it's been completely definitively clarified.
2: Should patients starting on one of these drugs be warned about the risk of developing an impulse control disorder and their caregivers to look out for them? Absolutely, because as
1: you can imagine, family members and patients who haven't heard about this might not have any idea that their medications could be related to these behaviors. Plus, Compulsive sexuality, pathological gambling, these are private activities that people feel ashamed about, and they're not going to ask their doctor about it if they're not inquired specifically about it. How do they affect people's lives? they can be devastating. Extreme financial loss, marital strain, even divorce. I can't overstate how devastating they can be. So it's absolutely critical to catch them early. We really, really depend often on caregivers to have a better sense of how our patients are doing. As physicians, we can sometimes be fooled by the overanimated patients in the room that don't have any complaints, but we don't really realize that at home they're irritable, they're consumed in behavioral addictions, in these impulse control problems, and they have marital strain. So we really need to get collateral history. And the spouses often are the biggest clue or partners, because there's a lot of irritability and marital strain often. Can they be controlled? Sometimes. They can remit completely. For me, Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. Many when the
1: medications are reduced, especially the dopamine agonist medications, but you have to reduce that dose pretty slowly and really watch people closely because there's a withdrawal syndrome that can occur. Patients will often call their doctor saying that they're off. But if they were examined by the movement disorder doctor, they actually motorically or physically can be okay. So this dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome, which is almost like a cocaine withdrawal, is very important for the doctors to be aware of patients can feel very fatigued, dysphoric, and depressed, anxious, and irritable. And so you have to go slowly. So reducing the meds is the right treatment, but some patients don't tolerate it. I think that sometimes there are alternatives to going back up on the medication. Certain mood medications may help. And some patients, they crash, and after a few days, they rebound. But if they've been on high doses of dopamine agonists for a long time, the withdrawal syndrome can be very difficult to treat and sometimes intractable. So it's really important to catch these impulse control disorders early.
2: Can medications be added that specifically address the impulse control disorder?
1: We're hoping to have better evidence for that. We really, really need good treatment studies. One well-designed study of naltrexone showed that there was some hint of benefit, but the study failed to meet its primary outcome. I believe that naltrexone, which is used for binge drinking and for other repetitive behaviors off-label may be helpful for some of the milder impulse control disorders where people are over-absorbed in activities or for compulsive drinking. But some case reports of clozapine, which is an antipsychotic that does not worsen Parkinson's symptoms, and clozapine may have a particularly strong anti-impulsive effect. Some of those case reports report that it's helpful, and I've had some patients that seem to benefit from that, but we don't really have enough data, and we need more studies. Others have tried anti-seizure medications like valproate or topiramate, but there are very few case reports. So the primary mainstay of treatment, absolutely, is a reduction of the dopamine agonist medication. Does it help to have talk therapy along with it, cognitive behavioral therapy, or others? It's a great question. There was at least one very good study of cognitive behavioral therapy that suggested a potential benefit, and support groups may be helpful. But it's important for people to realize that akin to the contemporary treatment of substance use and addictions, a medical model is critical. Expecting that An individual just going to 12-step programs is going to be helpful without looking at the medications and thinking about adjusting the dopaminergic meds and other things is unlikely to be as successful. So those things are probably ancillary for the severe ones, but medications, treatments are helpful.
2: What should physicians know about impulse control disorders? I'm sure that probably people with Parkinson's see their general practitioners as well as their movement disorders team. That's right. Physicians really
1: need to know about this possibility. Some of these medications and other similar medications are prescribed for other conditions. But we have to certainly have physicians educate their patients and caregivers. Getting collateral history is critical. Regularly screening, assessing these risk factors that we talked about, treating early, considering partnering with a psychiatrist with either experience in behavioral addictions, an addiction psychiatrist, or maybe a psychiatrist with experience in Parkinson's if it's very difficult. And the dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome is critical for the physicians to understand because otherwise they misinterpret the patient's response as a return of physical symptoms and they just go right back up on the medication. That's something that many doctors don't really realize that is important
2: to know. How about what people with Parkinson's and their caregivers need to know?
1: That these are common They're not due to character deficits, but they're biologically mediated. It's an interaction between baseline biological susceptibility interacting with these meds that affect the reward circuitry in the brain and life experiences. So early identification is really important. And don't be ashamed. Talk with your doctor about them. And patients who recover from impulse control disorders, often feel like the problem is solved. But they need to really maintain an empathic understanding that their spouse, whose awareness was full and their eyes were wide open during the traumatic experiences, often takes much longer to recover. Healing is a process. And so I have often worked with caregivers or partners and had to encourage the patients to realize that it's not just fixed, the recovery takes a while.
2: Should caregivers, spouses be on the lookout for these, actually monitor the patient's behavior? And if they do, this really affects the patient. So do they have to sign on? Do they need consent? for something that formal to be done.
1: Yeah, certainly patient consent's always necessary for us as doctors to speak with others about one of our patients' care. But some physicians could reasonably insist that for particular patients at very high risk, say those with a heavy history of substance use in their family and personal substance use history and young age, some physicians could reasonably insist they'd only prescribe some of the dopamine agonists such as pramipexole or ropinirole, with a careful risk monitoring plan that incorporates a trusted close individual.
2: Is there anything important to add or that we've missed? Well,
1: one of the most useful explanatory models that I find fascinating for impulse control disorders is based on our understanding of reward-based learning in the brain. When we experience an unexpected reward, there's a transient release of dopamine in our reward-learning center, called the ventral striatum, and that release of dopamine encodes the link between stimulation and reward. At the other extreme, when we expect a reward but we get a negative outcome or a punishment, there's a pause in the dopamine release in the reward learning center. So it's a delicate balance between the history of the variable dopamine releases and pauses based on our past experiences that influence our goal-directed behavior. And in susceptible Parkinson's patients who are given these dopamine meds that bind to these limbic or emotional brain circuits, there's a shift or a bias such that those susceptible individuals become super sensitive to rewards due to the boosted dopamine levels and they can't learn from punishment or negative consequences. So if you think of an individual on dopamine agonist who has a family vulnerability to impulse control disorders going to a casino, The danger is after the patient wins big, because that dopamine release is so amplified by the medication, then no matter how many times they lose, because they can no longer get that pause or that decrease in dopamine when they lose, they just keep getting locked into that behavioral addiction. And it's it's a really window on the way that goal-directed, reward-based learning occurs in the brain.
2: So they're essentially getting a reward exogenously from administered medication, feeling a reward which would normally occur in the brain if you did something that deserved a reward. But here they don't have that
1: stimulus. Well, the reward still occurs externally, but the external event is like a hit of crack cocaine. So, you know, they win big, but instead of a bit of a rise, there's a bigger rise, and they can't learn from their mistakes, so they get locked in more and more. So there's that bias towards reward learning.
2: What's the take-home message to families and people with Parkinson's? that
1: these are common. We all need to look for them. We need to educate doctors, patients, and caregivers about them. They're not due to character deficits. They're biologically-based behavioral disorders. They can be treatable, but close follow-up is critical. The dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome is very common in individuals as they go down on the agonists. And the patient, him or herself, will often tell the doctor, I'm off, I'm off. My Parkinson's is worse. Don't take those input as physicians by phone. Examine the patient. Often the clue is that they're sleeping for hours, they're fatigued, they're irritable, they're really in a bad mood. Sometimes they come out of that. But catching them early is critical because if patients are on these medications with impulse control disorders for a long period of time, it's much, much harder to treat them. Good. Very good.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in.